With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we are here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to the 66th episode of my show. My goal for my show has always been to help raise awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and also to provide worldwide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and also to help better protect privacy. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, TuneIn, CastBox, Podtoppin, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. I sincerely appreciate all of you worldwide who tune in. My show has surpassed the 86,000 listeners mark. So thank you all for listening. Please keep your feedback and questions coming in. I do welcome them all. Also, I want to provide another reminder. You've heard this before, but it's really important. The NIST Privacy Framework Development is an active project, and it's lasting throughout 2019. And I'm part of the core development team for that project, and we really want to get as much feedback from as many different industries and the general public and many different countries and perspectives as possible. There are a lot of you I know who are thinking, hmm, well, should I send my feedback? Uh, Maybe it won't be read or what impact will it make? We're reading all of your feedback and we really want to hear from all types of of industries, and I there's a lot of industries that have not yet provided any feedback. So please go to nist.gov forward slash privacy hyphen framework, and there you will see more information about the project. You'll also be able to b- provide feedback on the many different documents that are located there and if you want to send an email it will tell you where to send an email when you get to the site but basically the email address is privacyframework at nist.gov so I hope many of you do take me up on this and read the documents give the feedback let us know how this privacy framework would impact your industry you know what topics need to be addressed that maybe aren't there, what are the challenges that you're facing for your industry, and so on. 
Really appreciate it if you would do that. Now on to today's topic. Throughout my career, over the past 25 plus years, one of the activities that I've done with my clients, many of them are my primary contacts are executives or VPs or other types of decision makers, something that many of them have asked me to do is just to meet occasionally with them, often once a quarter, a few times, a few clients once a month, but oftentimes once a quarter. And I meet with them to just discuss current information, security, privacy, and compliance news and topics that I think that they need to be aware of and to keep their eye on and in many cases to look into for how those topics would impact their own organizations. Then my clients will often have many questions about those topics and and they want to know, well, how does this apply to us? And often they ask many additional questions and ask for more information, which I love because it really creates some very good conversations. Now, sometimes I can answer all their questions, but often I need to go do some more research and get back to them. Well, Today, what I wanted to do and I'm going to do is to replicate as much as possible, kind of like a sample of this type of meeting, uh, except, of course, I won't be able to interactively take questions from you, my listeners, or hear your immediate reactions. But there are just so many things going on in the world with so much new tech, so many new types of data than ever before, adding on to all of the existing data that's accumulated over the decades. Uh, We have new threats, we have new vulnerabilities, and of course, seemingly every day sometimes there are new laws and regulations, and the list could go on. So I want to take this opportunity to share some privacy and security news and topics with you, things that businesses, organizations, and the general public really need to know about. And then, due to a very close family member who just went through major surgery yesterday, I'm going to take a break from doing new shows for a while. Now, currently, I'm planning on starting with new shows again in early to mid-August. But, you know, I need to to see what the next few weeks and months bring. And doing this show truly is a labor of love of mine. I, I do it because I truly want to raise awareness for a wide variety of information security and privacy topics. But it typically takes around 15 to 20 hours to do each show. You know, I, I'm choosing the topics and then... I'm looking for the the really great guests and folks that I want to come on the show and speak about these topics. And then it takes time to actually do the invitations to my guest and answer what are often a lot of questions that they have about my show, about the questions. 
then doing scheduling and planning specific topics to ask questions about. And then I always like to establish the high-level questions to guide my conversations with them. And then I do all of the show write-ups and all the social media and press releases and many other things. So with the exception of recording the show, which my really fabulous Voice America sound engineers do, I'm doing basically everything else related to this show completely myself. And now I need to take that time and I need to devote it to providing care to and being with a family member that I love very much who needs me. And whether or not I continue again in August will depend in large part about how my beloved child recuperates in the coming weeks and if I see that there's any need or appetite based on listener feedback to continue to do my shows. Now, all of my 66 episodes of shows, counting this one, will always be able to be listened to. They'll be available to all of my listeners and everyone else, and the topics will not be getting old anytime soon. In fact, some are going to be increasingly important to address and to listen back on as time goes on. So now let's get to some topics and some current news that I think a lot of listeners need to be aware of. So I've done several shows now about elections and voting machines, security, and attempted hacks and other related issues. And I've had a wide variety of really great guests. They've covered a few of the many different topics that are involved with this very big Um, area of election security and voting machines and systems and application security. Now, during the prep for all those shows, I've ran across some really interesting news items and things that I've dug up deep within the depths of the internet, and many of them did not make it into my show. But one in particular that did not make it into my conversations, but that I believe is really important to think about, and that all of those responsible for voting equipment security need to be held responsible for correcting has to do with the security of those voting machines. So there was an article in the October 25th, 2018 issue of Wired. It was written by Brian Varner, a Symantec researcher, and it had a title that really caught my eye. So the title was, I bought used voting machines on eBay for $100 a piece, and what I found was alarming. Well, wouldn't that get your attention? Well, I saw that, and I thought, I have got to read this. So Brian wrote that in 2016, he bought two voting machines online for less than $100 a piece, And he was able to purchase a pair of direct recording electronic voting machines and have them delivered right to his house in just a few days. This was in 2016. Guess what? He did that again 
in 2018, finding voting machines on eBay for sale. And when the article was published in October 2018, he wrote that at that time, those same types of voting machines that had been used for actual voting, for actual elections, were still available to purchase online. Those same types. Remember, he bought some of them, but yet there were more out there to purchase. So this is really alarming. So Brian, the author of the article, wrote, you know, if getting voting machines delivered to my door was shockingly easy, getting inside them proved to be simpler still. The tamper-proof screws did not work. All the computing equipment was still intact and the hard drives had not been wiped. The information I found on the drives, including candidates, precincts, and the numbers of votes cast on the machine were not encrypted. Worse, the property of government labels were still attached to the physical devices, meaning someone had sold government property filled with voter information and location data online through an online auction space at a low cost and they faced no consequences. Um, Brian also wrote then later in that article that he, quote, reverse engineered the machines to understand how they could be manipulated. After removing the internal hard drive, I, Brian, was able to access the file structure in our operating system. Since the machines were not wiped after they were used in the 2012 presidential election, I got a great deal of insight into how the machines store the votes that were cast on them. Within hours, I was able to change the candidates' names to be that of anyone I wanted. When the machine printed out the official record for the votes that were cast, it showed that the candidate's name I invented had received the most votes on that particular machine. This year, and that would be 2018 again, I bought two more machines to see if security had been improved. To my dismay, I discovered what the newer model machines, those that were actually used in the 2016 election, were running, and they were running Windows CE and have USB ports, among other components that make them even easier to exploit than the older ones, end quote. So just think about that. Um, He was able to go online and find actual machines that had been used in elections. Now, I know because there have been folks who are from, you know, the elections management and um, also they are folks who work with these type of machines who have told me, well, you know, those, those results, even if he can change them now, that doesn't mean anything because that voting has already been, you know, done. Uh, those results have already been verified. But that's not the point. The point is, if you if someone was able to take these machines and buy them and still have all of this data unencrypted on the, the machines and someone was able to figure out how to 
um, get into the data and change the results, we need to do audits and we need to do risk assessments for the machines that are still being used out there. Some of them may be the same ones. We don't know that. We do know that there's a lot of really old voting machines still being used throughout the U.S. and, you know, possibly other countries as well. We know that there's many groups and people within the U.S. and from other countries that would love to have the elections to go the way they want them to go, right? I mean, this is the same for not just in the U.S., but for most other countries. Often groups want to be able to be the party elected, and some will do bad things to make sure that happens. So having these these devices, the voting machines and the systems and the applications to be well secured that our democracy depends upon is very important. Now, I've spoken a lot about the need to improve elections and voting systems and machines security. You know, it's widely documented about all of the hacks that have been attempted against elections databases, such as for the voter registration files, in addition to hacks attempted into the actual voting machines themselves. And again, I'm saying attempted because we know, we know we've seen the reports, we know that hacks have been attempted in all 50 states in the U.S. Um, and, you know, likely elsewhere too, where these machines are being used. To date, the government officials, of course, have claimed that no hack attempt into the actual voting systems themselves have been successful. The voting systems like the ones that I just, you know, described to you were purchased off of eBay. But then articles such as this one detailing how easily someone was able to get into a voting system and change the votes to determine the outcome are published. How do we know that the voting machines were not tampered with, given these researchers who find such significant vulnerabilities within the machines themselves? Why aren't we holding the voting machines vendors to a security standard to keep situations where real voting systems are purchased off eBay with real data still on them from a recent election who is accountable and responsible for this you know why haven't any of the voting machines vendors who i've invited to discuss these issues on my show accepted so i can actually get some answers directly from them Um, on may 14th of 2019 so just this month florida governor ron desantis revealed after he met with the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security that he was told that Russian hackers success, uh, successfully hacked into the voter registration files for two Florida counties in 2016 prior to the elections, which is really startling. Now, keep in mind the voter registration files are in different systems than the actual voting machines themselves. But the voter registration files are what um, are used when people show up to vote, right? To know whether or not those folks are valid voters and if their votes should be accepted. So it's, it's still a startling detail. Voting systems and election security must be significantly strengthened 
This is a topic where we need to keep asking questions about what is being done to improve security, and we need to demand satisfactory answers and actions for this very important topic. Okay, now I want to go on to another topic. I could just talk about the voting elections all day because it's so important, but I do want to get to other things that are also very important. And something that I read about just a a day or two ago um, caught my attention. So I know many of you out there are applications and systems developers and programmers. How many of you use Git hosting services to do collaborative coding and applications design. Well, a recent ZDNet article title caught my eye. It said, a hacker is wiping Git repositories and asking for a ransom. Hacker threatens to release the code if victims don't pay in 10 days. So that was the title. Well, hundreds, um, possibly thousands of developers have had Git source code repositories seems to be, and I'm going to say seems to be wiped out and replaced with a ransom demand. Um, The hacks started May 3rd, 2019, and they appear to be coordinated across the Git hosting services. So, When I'm saying that, I'm talking about sites such as GitHub and Bitbucket and GitLab and so on. Now, the good news is that members of the Stack Exchange Security Forum reportedly spent a lot of time looking into the situation and the victims and basically uh, they discovered that ultimately the hacker did not actually delete the files. Instead, it seems that the cyber crooks uh, simply altered the git commit headers. The git commit headers. I want to say that clearly so you don't think I'm saying other words. So meaning code commits can be recovered in some cases anyway. So if you use git hosting services, Or, if you know someone who does, be aware of the situation and make backups. Make backups of what you are keeping up there and don't pay the ransoms. Um, So, here's another thing that has to do with destructiveness and being kind of a nasty person online. This This one kind of blew my mind, too. I saw a report in Forbes on May 15th of this year, 2019. And the headline was, a laptop with six of the most destructive malware threats ever is up for public auction. So here was something, a headline that caught my eye and I thought, what? You know, I really did think it was satire at first because of the author who wrote this article sometimes write satirical articles, but so I looked elsewhere and I found it reported elsewhere too. So what are the six most destructive malware threats ever known that are purportedly on this laptop that is being auctioned off online? Well, 
and includes Wanna Cry, Black Energy, I Love You, My Doom, So Big, and Dark Tequila. Now, they are some of the most destructive pieces of malware ever ever released into the connected world. And they've collectively caused around you know, 100 billion U.S. dollars, you know, possibly more, in related damages. Now, while some of them are still floating around in the wild, all six of them, the person who's selling this laptop, laptop is claiming all six of them are currently sitting on just this one laptop. And this laptop is currently being auctioned online for hundreds of thousands of dollars, making it as the headline is screaming the most dangerous laptop in the world. And it's running Windows XP. And it's shown currently sitting on a white cube in a room somewhere in New York City. Now, here's the kicker. It's being auctioned off as a piece of art that has been titled The Persistence of Chaos. Perhaps the malware is on the laptop, maybe not, maybe on the laptop, but unusable because the malware is strongly encrypted or otherwise unusable for some other reasons. You know, there are laws against selling malware. For example, in the U.S., the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, or CFAA, it imposes some criminal penalties for a variety of computer misuse offenses including the sale of malware. It's going to be interesting to see how this ends. Now, you can watch the live bidding online. When I last checked on May 17th, 2019, um, at 1.30 p.m. Central Time, I saw that the bid was at $763,601 for this artwork. Uh, and the auction ends on May 24, 2019. You can watch the bidding price go up if you go to thepersistenceofchaos.com. Will the buyer actually find the code of these six types of malware on this device? Well, I have my doubts. Likely a gimmick. But if not, what does the buyer who will be paying close to or maybe even over a million dollars plan to do with the malware? It certainly shows some ingenuity on the part of the crooks for trying to reap a really huge payday for selling malware as artwork in a public online auction. Well, right now we are at a point in the show where it is time uh, to take a quick break. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. 
she has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and today I'm speaking about a really wide range of topics. I try to f- choose some topics that I think are important that maybe don't get enough discussion online and also some things that are just uh, intriguing and the types of things that I speak with some of my executive clients about. So the next thing I want to talk about Um, was something I saw last month in the April 2019 news items that I was looking through. And one of the news items claimed that the largest personal data breach in history had occurred. And here was the heading. Email data breach exposes over 2 billion, and that's billion with a B, personal records. So it went on to say, quote, the new world record has been set by email marketing service verifications.io thanks to some unsecured public-facing databases containing what appear to be just about all of their customer information, end quote. So per the various reports about this, Over 2 billion records were discovered online as security researchers found that at least four of this company's databases were sitting out there available on the Internet, open to anyone online. In other words, there were no access controls to get to this data. Now, verifications.io is an, quote, email verification platform, end quote. And it's used by marketers. It's one of the largest of its kind. The company appears to have scraped from sites and other sources a lot of personal data 
And then they went through and organized the public content information and some private financial data like mortgage amounts and credit score estimates into customer profiles. Then marketers send verifications.io lists of email addresses to screen and validate against this huge database that they've accumulated as part of preparing for email marketing campaigns. And that's a very high level description. There's more to it, but that gives you the gist of the situation. Well, with regard to this largest personal data leak in history ever, as the headline says, the reports said that the company seems to have been scraping up an unusually large amount of personal information online. Now, while no passwords or social security numbers were found in this huge um, data breach, this huge database of personal data, here are the types of things that were found by the security researchers. So they found email addresses and they were connected to social media profiles. They found full names. They found physical addresses. They found phone numbers. They found date of birth. They found IP addresses associated with the person. They found mortgage amounts and interest rates that the person was paying. They found estimates of the each person's credit scores. Profiles of millions of businesses, in addition to all of these individuals, profiles of millions of businesses were also found in this huge email, what they're calling an email, data breach. Now, these records appear to mostly be made up of publicly available data, including contact information and annual revenue. The databases with all these types of personal data were all running MongoDB, and they were located in Miami. An independent researcher named Bob Diachinko, and I'm sorry, Bob, if I'm saying your name wrong, but Bob Diachinko of Security Discovery reportedly found them in late February. And after tracking it back to verifications.io, he notified the company before he went public in early March. Now, it's worth noting that this is not the first time that MongoDB has been associated with a major data breach. Other examples include the Cloud Pets Toys data breach, uh, an Android keyboard theme developer, AI.type had a breach, um, a subsidiary of coupons.com called SaverSpy, and the list could go on. But those are just few examples of uh, some others related to the MongoDB databases, which are very popular among cyber criminals who usually prefer to encrypt and then ransom, ransom them. Now, the main fault here, it seems lies with verification.io's data storage policies. Not only was the database open to the public, but everything was stored in plain text. Now, I listed all of the things that was found there. A lot of that's really sensitive information. The company's initial response to Diachinko was reportedly that they indicated that they felt that since the information 
in the email data breach was, quote, publicly accessible anyway, because they scraped it from sources open to the public, they felt that they didn't need to then secure that data. Ah, oh, this, this irritates me so much. I know it irritates a lot of my listeners who are in information security and privacy too. It's, it's just, it's a very bad excuse for not securing this accumulated repository of all this sensitive personal data. In my point of view, it's absolutely irresponsible, unacceptable, and downright purposefully negligent to not secure data about individuals that is so sensitive. Um, Just think about all of the things that can be done with all of this data. And certainly this is something that is used for especially things like uh, phishing types of activities with all of this data. Phishing is so easy, easy to use to then scam people. So I want to go on and and give another topic, but this is just, it seems so ridiculous. So speaking of data breaches, at the end of April, there was another headline that caught my eye, and this one was from PC World. The headline was, Mystery Data Breach Reportedly Exposed 80 Million Names, Addresses, and Income Information in the United States, and No One Has Any Idea Who's to Blame. So this huge repository of personal data was reportedly discovered by security researchers Ran Lokar and Noam Rodem, a VPN mentor. And I'm sorry, folks, if I got your name wrong. I tried (laughs) my best. So they reported that the unencrypted, or let's just call it clear text data, was hosted by a Microsoft cloud server, and it appeared to be limited, this data was data about people over the age of 40. And when they dissected the data, the researchers found that it seemed to itemize households rather than the individual. And within the database, it included um, full addresses, street addresses, cities, counties, states, zip codes, the whole thing. It, It had the exact longitude and latitude for where these folks were located, where they lived. It included their full names, including their first, last, and middle initial. It included their ages. It included date of birth. Then the researchers discovered coded references to their titles, to their gender, to their marital status, income, homeowner status, and the type of dwelling that they are in. And that might not seem as dangerous, you know, as social security numbers or credit card numbers and so on. But think about all of this data. This is really building this very clear picture about these folks and the types of income levels that they're at and, you know, where they're living tells a lot about them as well. This repository of data really provides what can be a gold mine for cyber crooks and identity thieves and other types of attackers. And in the article, the researchers warned that the hackers could use this information for phishing and ransomware scams. Of course they could. Look at that type of information. It gives them such details about their personal lives. 
you could use that for social engineering within phishing messages so easily. It also included, you know, ways that you could use less technical scams to track their social media and find out if they're in home or if they're on vacation or what they purchased or who their family members are and so on. So based on the type and wealth of information, the company suspected that this database, who they, they didn't know where it came from. That's that's the thing. This huge database with 80 million um, identities within it, the researchers are guessing or are making an educated uh, guess about who it's maybe owned by an insurance company or healthcare or mortgage company based upon these details. So what was this huge database and the other one with 2 billion records doing just sitting on the internet for anyone in the world to look at? You know, the lack of understanding for the risks that are involved with making this type of personal data available online is is breathtaking. Too few think about the consequences to the data subjects involved when their personal data such as this that reveal intimate details about their lives, the, the potential harms that could occur to them when that data is not protected and controlled. You know, too many organizations are currently practicing security by obscurity, meaning they think, oh, well, if we don't tell people that it's out there, then they won't know how to find it or it'll stay hidden because there's just so much other data online that they won't notice these huge repositories. You know, too many cloud services owners and startups and executives who I've heard tell me that they want to save money by not implementing a full range of necessary layers of security. They tell me, well, Rebecca, no one will know how to find this data online. Uh, Come on, folks, you need to know this. On the internet, there is no such thing as obscurity. There are hundreds, if not thousands of tools that can quickly and easily find specific data that malicious actors and cyber crooks could use to do bad things with. Or another uninformed view is this. Well, Rebecca, no one's going to target my site. I'm a small business. No one cares about targeting me. Here's, Here's a fact for you, folks. It doesn't matter what the size of your business is. Cyber crooks don't care about the size of your business. They care about your data, though. If you have data that can be valuable to them, then they're going to go after it. They don't care how big your organization is. They just want that personal data you've collected. Or one more, a dangerously naive and what I think is a willfully neglectful point of view that I've often heard, I've often heard this, and I still heard it, is when I've had organizations, CEOs and business leaders tell me, well, this data is already online. It's in social media sites and it's in many other places and I'm not posting anything that has not already been posted. So how can I be violating any privacy context matters context matters the context within which you have all of this personal data in one huge database that can reveal much much more as a part of that one big database 
about all the associated individuals within it than if you go out online and find one piece of personal data in a million different places for a million different people. You know, if you leave these huge repositories of personal data online for anyone to find, it's like presenting to the world a completed million-piece jigsaw puzzle representing the life of each person within that database and associated with your financial organization or your healthcare organization or retail business or your cloud service and so on. All those other pieces of data that you claim are already online were put there under a different context And all these different pieces are scattered throughout the Internet. Those million pieces of a person's life jigsaw puzzle, each on its own, does not have any context built around it like it would have in one huge collection, like it are being left online for anybody to find. It would be like finding one piece of a person's life jigsaw puzzle in New York City and having all the other pieces located all around the world in different places and circumstances. You know, that one data point can provide some information, but not the complete picture about a person's life, like those entire databases containing tens of millions and even billions, as we heard, of personal data records within the context of the organization that collected them and is using them. Context matters, folks, when it comes to privacy. Organizational leaders, you need to listen to your information security practitioners and listen to your privacy practitioners. Business leaders, stop damaging information security and privacy in the name of saving a few bucks. By doing so, you are being irresponsible and negligent and in growing numbers of cases liable for the harms that then occur. Okay, well, enough on that. Um, I'm going to go on to another topic, but as you can tell, this is such an important issue. I hope some of you listening will speak with your business leaders about this. So now I want to get into ransomware. Targeted ransomware attacks on local U.S. government entities, you know, by this I mean Cities, uh, government, police stations, schools, these are all on the rise. And they are costing these localities literally millions of dollars as many of them just pay off the ransomware crooks in an effort to, you know, quickly get back to the systems that they found themselves cut off from as a result of being a victim of ransomware. This was really interesting to me. The tally that was created by cybersecurity firm Recorded Future, and really this is one of the first efforts to measure the breadth of the ransomware assaults. Anyway, um, the research from Recorded Future found that at least 170 county, city, or state government systems, this is in the United States, have been attacked by ransomware since 2013, including at least 45 police and sheriff's offices. Um, So now let's think about just 2019. We're only in May right now. There have been 22 public sector attacks so far just in 2019. And the latest major city 
I think, I, I should look at the headlines this morning, but the late, latest major city to be hit was Baltimore, which got hit with ransomware on May 7th. And it had to quarantine its networks and it was forced to do a lot of municipal services manually while they were getting back to normal. But the sad thing is that was the second time they'd been hit by ransomware. You know what? Ransomware crooks are living uh, lucrative lives. They're, they're getting a lot of um, money and living in nice houses, I'm sure, because so many people just pay the ransom. And if they find a victim that's going to pay them to get their data and systems back, they're going to go back and hit those victims again. Heck, why wouldn't they? They got paid one time. They'll probably get paid again. Speaking of ransomware... A study by ProPublica that was released this month, again, May of 2019, they found that most ransomware solutions providers get rid of the hackers simply by paying them off. Think about that. (laughs) Let me restate this. The ransomware solutions providers, the people that those who have been hit by ransomware go to to help them to get out of their ransomware situation, those solutions providers, according to this study by ProPublicly, are paying the hackers the ransoms and then charging their clients, the ransomware victims, sometimes an arm and a leg to basically make the ransomware payment. So no wonder ransomware attacks are growing daily by leaps and bounds. It's highly profitable. The crooks don't get caught. In the first quarter of 2019, the average ransom increased by 89% to $12,762 from the fourth quarter of 2018 when it was $6,733. That's a big jump. So come on, people. Make frequent backups. Make sure all your workers and you... Do not fall for the phishing tactics that usually result in successful ransomware attacks. Prevent from prevent your organization from being a victim of ransomware by doing these preventive measures so you don't become part of these statistics. Now, speaking of phishing attacks, uh, another article that I read about in late April reported that the Google Chrome address bar can be reportedly used to launch a phishing attack. So this is a new web-hosted hoax that if you use Chrome, especially Google Chrome on your um, smartphone, Look out for fake address bars. And this was discovered by developer James Fisher. And basically, it's a potential a potential flaw with Google Chrome, which could mean that Android users would unknowingly land on a fake site that exploits that Chrome disappearing address bar. You know, typically when you use Chrome on a mobile uh, Android device, as you scroll down the web page, the URL vanishes. 
You know what that's like? I mean, I have an Android device. I hate that. Uh, when I use Chrome, it's right. That that address bar disappears. I hate that. And that's one of the reasons I use Firefox now on my Android device, because I like to know what uh, what the URL is for where I'm located. Well, attackers can use this vulnerability to display a fake URL address bar called an inception bar, and it won't disappear until you visit another website. So that fake bar displays a real website's address, and it fools you into thinking that you're on a different site than you actually are. What's even worse is that the attack can block you from seeing the real address bar once you scroll back up. And this method could could theoretically, theoretically allow malicious sites to, you know, capture your passwords and credit card numbers. You know, so how do you spot a fake what you know, web address bar. You have to pay attention to the website's starting address before you start scrolling down. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. If you lock your phone and then unlock it while you're on the web page, the real address bar will show back up at the top of the fake one, and that will show you that it's a scam. Um, so, gosh, this hour went by so fast. We're getting close to the end. I have, I have so many other things I could talk about. But, you know, right now, um, I think I don't want to get started I, uh, in something long because we only have a couple of minutes left. So today I've been speaking about a really wide range of current information security, privacy and related topics. Now, as I indicated at the beginning of the show, I'm taking off two to three months to give my attention to my dear son while he recuperates, and I'm going to use the time that I had been putting into this show, plus, of course, much more, as much as he needs, uh, in order to help him recuperate over the summertime. So, in the meantime... Send me your feedback about this show, either this episode or about the other shows I've been doing. Have you found the information that I've been providing on my shows helpful? Have you enjoyed the guests that I've uh, had on my shows? You know, I always have enjoyed greatly speaking with all of my guests. I always learn so much from each and every one of them. Please let me know. And when or if I come back from my summer break, uh, do you have a topic to suggest I cover? You can always contact me with questions and comments and provide me with uh, your show topic ideas uh, using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. And of course, please remember, you'll be able to listen to the recordings of all my now 66 shows. You can find recordings of all my past shows on all the different app sites. uh, And also, you can find them on the VoiceAmerica.com business channel website, as well as on a dedicated page I have on my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Also, if you need help with information security, privacy, or compliance keynotes, or need an expert witness, why, just get in touch with me. In the meantime, I urge you all to notice 
and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information and how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. And I sincerely hope that all of you really do ask those that you do business with and those that you work for, are they doing all that they can to secure the information that you've entrusted to them? Be privacy aware in the week and months ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe.